afternoon and welcome to Let's Talk. The pastor is in. I'm program host Kip Allen. Let's Talk's the program for the Christian layman, you know, the Lutheran who believes but might have some questions. And in short, that program's designed for, well, for many. You know, because there's a lot I don't understand. It doesn't have to be something soul-shaking. It might just be something that's been bothering me for a while. And I find that rather than getting into a deep theological discussion, sometimes a casual front porch style talk of the pastor is the best way to understanding. That's what this program is all about. Today's guest is Kirk Clayton of Zion Lutheran Church in Mascouta, Illinois. I have my questions. I'm sure you have yours. You can send the questions in by email at any time to let's talk at kfuo.org, or you can call in. If you're in the St. Louis area, including the uh, Metro East, call us at area code 314 821 0850 or toll free anywhere in the lower 48 at 1 800 730 2727. Pastor Clayton, welcome to the front porch. Thank you. Great to be with you. Well, I'm glad you're here because, you know, as the intro says here, there's a lot I don't understand, and frankly, I'm confused. I mean, I'm reading the newspapers, and I'm watching television, uh, I'm watching the TV news, I'm, I'm reading the blogs, and somehow we Christians are responsible for the, the virus, among other things. Uh huh, and I, I'm just blown away. <laughs> New York Times, you know, the, the, supposedly the paper of record. Uh, here's a headline that they wrote: Churches were eager to reopen. Now they are a major source of coronavirus cases. The virus has infiltrated Sunday services, church meetings, and youth camps. More than 650 cases have been reportedly linked to religious facilities. Now that's since the beginning of the crisis. Three million cases are now known to be here in the United States. How on earth is that a major case? I mean, I'm looking right now at the St. Louis Post-Dispatch, our local newspaper. (laughs) We just had here in the state of Missouri alone 795 new cases. (laughs) What is going on here? Well, you mentioned the uh, New York Times is supposedly, uh, what do they call themselves, the paper of record. That reminds me of something my dad said probably 35 years ago. There was a member of a parish where he was serving that had a, a very, very high regard for a certain newspaper. It wasn't the New York Times in this case, but a, a certain newspaper. And my dad said, oh, yeah, I love that newspaper. I find it very handy for lining my birdcage with. <laughs> And so uh, the New York Times, maybe the paper of record or the paper of extreme usefulness for lining your birdcage to catch the uh, the, the droppings. Um, but, yeah, isn't it amazing that uh, the church is now kind of seen as the cause or the root of pretty much every problem in society? And we can get into the specifics of the numbers that the New York Times points out with this screaming headline of churches were eager to reopen. Now they're a major source of coronavirus cases. But maybe just to start with, we can uh, just take a, uh, take a deep breath and go back to Jesus' own words saying, um, the world will hate you. It hated me first. Uh, the world will reject you. 
but of course we see what the world's reaction was to Jesus, who, contrary to, is it Don Lemon, the host on CNN? Oh, yeah, wasn't that incredible? Was a perfect uh, <laughs> moral example during his time on Earth. Was it uh, Don Lemon said, of course, Jesus wasn't perfect either in his time on Earth. Well, um, I'm sorry, I, I beg to differ on that. <laughs> Um, but, Mr. You know, Lemon definitely has a lack of knowledge of Christian theology. It's just... I think he has a lack of a lot of things. Anyway, um, but um, so Jesus, <laughs> how do we get back on track here? Um, well, Jesus, Jesus said that the world would reject us as it rejected him. And we recall that Jesus was the perfect example of humility, love, sacrifice, gentleness. Uh, you know, we're told that a, a smoldering flax he will not put out and a bruised reed he will not break. And yet the world would so reject the most perfect, the only perfect man to ever live uh, and the most gentle, the most humble man who'd ever live to the point of crucifying him. So if the world would so reject Jesus, we, we really shouldn't be terribly surprised when the world rejects us as Christians either, and when the, the world blames us for, you know, everything that they can throw at us, including the fact that 640 or 650 people have gotten sick in churches over, what, four months out of three million cases, which then becomes the headline in the New York Times, churches were eager to reopen, now they're a major source of coronavirus <laughs> cases, which you point out is less major than simply the number of cases reported in the state of Missouri yesterday. <laughs> <laughs> well, one thing that they failed to report, for example, was that of those 650 cases, 236 were linked to one Pentecostal church in Oregon. <laughs> and that church, admittedly, was not using the uh, safety protocols that were recommended. They were not social distancing. They were not using masks and so on. I believe they were, um, you know, dancing, engaged in close contact with each other. And, yeah, so they're a third to half of all the cases. But even including that, now, I need to give a disclaimer here. I'm not a math major. <laughs> I'm a theologian. And in theology, you know, one plus one plus one in the, the divine trinity is one uh, unified triune God. Um, so my math skills are, you know, next to none. Uh, thanks be to God, my wife was a math major. She handles the finances for the family. Um, uh, nobody has ever been foolish enough to me, ask me to be the treasurer of an organization. <laughs> but <laughs> uh, I ran some numbers here. Uh, using the New York Times' own figures, that about 650 people have gotten sick with coronavirus in church. Now, granted, every one of those lives is precious. Every one of those lives is one that we would protect and uh, keep safe if we at all possibly could. Um, so 650 is not an ins insignificant number. We're not going to dismiss that at all. But... Uh, here, here's some here's some math from a non-math major. 650 cases out of there are approximately 300 million cases in the United States, and this is by the way since uh, the start of the COVID outbreak in February March. Both figures, so about 650 people since March have gotten sick in church, and about 300 million overall. Now, by my math, that's about two hundredths of one percent 
of all cases are linked to churches. Now, if two hundredths of one percent is a major source of of uh, new coronavirus cases, uh, I guess I simply you know function with a, ma- a different definition of major cause than what the New York Times does. <laughs> well, I must say, when I was in journalism school, they didn't stress mathematics. Yeah, <laughs> well, that that makes two of us. <laughs> uh, now, running the numbers again. Uh, so there's 650 cases linked to churches since March. Now, on an average Sunday, I, I'm assuming this is probably before um, the coronavirus hit, about 56 million Americans would attend worship each week. That that seems about right. The, the numbers there would put it at about 20% of Americans. That seems about consistent, that about 20% of Americans are actually in church on a Sunday morning. You know, of course, more like 75% profess that they are Christians, but only a small minority of those are actually physically in church. So if we use the figure 56 million people in America attend church on a weekend, and 650 of them have gotten sick, that's about, if my math is correct, one one-thousandth of one percent of all people in church have gotten sick with coronavirus. <laughs> well, here's some more math for you. This is an interesting one I've just read. There have been 133,000 coronavirus deaths here in the United States. Forty-two percent of those, about 56,000, have occurred in just three states those states being New York, Massachusetts, and New Jersey. And those three states combined only have 10% of the population. Mm-hmm. Okay. But, I, you know, this is something that the New York Times didn't report. And another uh, statistic that I've just seen today out of the Centers for Disease Control, uh, they keep a, a, a rolling weekly average of um, coronavirus deaths, and the peak, uh, the United States had 16,374 coronavirus deaths in the week ending on April 18th. In the most recent week, which might adjust somewhat, it, it might go up a little bit, but the week ending July 4th, there were 302 coronavirus deaths. Now, perhaps we might be a little bit more confident in the week before as the statistics roll in a little bit more. But in the week ending July 27th, or June 27th, there were 1,024 coronavirus deaths. You know, and the peak was 16,347. So the death count on a weekly basis from the coronavirus has dropped by what, over 90% mm-hmm. in the last couple of months? Yes, case numbers keep going up, quite possibly due to uh, wider testing. If you administer more tests, you have more positive results. And as uh, you know, the, the government ramped up the production of tests and made tests more available, more tests are being administered. So you know, more positive cases are being reported. But actually, the death toll has dropped by about 90% since uh, mid-April, so two and a half months. 
Uh, and the, the death toll has dropped on a weekly rolling basis by about 90%, which um, you know the New York Times doesn't bother to mention either, and probably uh, neither did the Post-Dispatch or any of the other major news sources, because that's not the, um, the it bleeds, it leads philosophy that mm-hmm. supposedly sells papers and airtime. You're you're absolutely right, and it's it's it is shocking. Uh, you know, I don't want to give the impression that I'm I'm trying to downplay the seriousness of the of the uh, COVID epidemic, uh, but <laughs> it's it's not quite as panicky and as serious, I think, as has been is being reported in the uh, in the mainstream media. Uh, and some of the reporting, some of the uh, reporting of the deaths, for example, uh, I'm trying to recall where I read this. I, th- I think it's in New York State where any death with a person had coronavirus, even if they died of a gunshot wound, it's reported as a coronavirus death. I've heard the same thing, and that there are financial incentives to label things that way, that if a person is admitted to the hospital, perhaps with unrelated symptoms, uh, but they are found to have coronavirus, then suddenly the hospital gets X number of thousand dollars for the extra care of dealing with a coronavirus patient. If the patient is placed on a respirator, the cash payout to the hospital goes even higher. And I believe if the person dies with the coronavirus, then the hospital receives an even greater cash payout because they were working with someone with corona. So it's actually in a hospital's financial best interest to run those coronavirus numbers as high as they can. It's a it's a fundraiser for them. If you have, you know, 10 coronavirus cases today, uh, you have, you know, tens of thousands of dollars flowing in. And so there's actually an incentive for hospitals to raise those numbers as high as they can. And it it may well be that a person was terminally ill and in the last stages of life due to, you know, perhaps cancer or heart disease, and yet if they somehow then contracted coronavirus, they suddenly became a coronavirus death, even though that might have only been an insignificant contributing factor. But because the hospital receives financial incentive to to report it that way, uh, then the numbers quite likely are, are very skewed. And so that could even play into the um, the death reports that we just talked about and other things. So, yeah, I, I'm extremely, extremely skeptical of much of the reporting that's been done uh, regarding the numbers. And also, you know, something that really, really shot what little credibility maybe mainstream media had left with me um, took place when the uh, riots and protests started mm-hmm. about the last week of May, beginning of June. Now, a couple of weeks before, there had been some fairly significant protests about the coronavirus lockdowns. You remember perhaps in the, the Michigan state capitol, um, there were some streets that were shut down and some marches um, to the state capitol to protest Governor Whitmer's lockdowns in Michigan. Those were soundly criticized in the media as being almost certain cases for the spread of coronavirus. Uh, you know, the people were, were marching shoulder to shoulder. Maybe they weren't wearing face masks. 
uh, and they were most likely to spread coronavirus. And I believe Governor Whitmer said, because you have protested in this way and likely spread coronavirus, now I'm probably going to have to be stricter on coronavirus lockdowns. So that is the way protests against coronavirus coronavirus lockdowns were reported. Then, what about two weeks, three weeks later, uh, people began first rioting, and then I think for the most part the riots have subsided somewhat, but protesting uh, the death of George Floyd as his uh, neck was kneeled on by a police officer, which is a horrendous, horrendous abuse of uh, police power, and it is being addressed as such. Um, so I'm not at all, you know, supporting the police officer that was involved in George Floyd's death. But th there were protests then that followed after, and a, a panel of medical doctors said, uh, we support protesters, you know, in, in light of George Floyd's death. They said, now this is not to be construed as saying that we support all protests, specifically protests to lift coronavirus um, lockdowns. And so medical doctors, I think it was a group of 180 doctors across the nation or something like that. It's, it's been, you know, a month and a half since I've read that headline, <laughs> but you know, uh, I think it was about 180 medical doctors said, we support protests in light of George Floyd's death, but we do not support protests to lift coronavirus lockdowns. So the only thing a medical doctor needs to be speaking to is, is this safe from medical perspective? The protests are exactly the same. <laughs> you know, you don't protest differently for, uh, you know, against police brutality and against lockdowns. It's the same manner of protest. And yet medical doctors said, well, one of them is okay in light of coronavirus and the other isn't. That's nonsensical. And the media lapped it up and reported it. Um, and the other thing, you know, so we're talking about this New York Times article that uh, churches are a major source of coronavirus cases. I've also seen a headline recently that uh, in the, the news media that says all these protests, they're, they're not a source of coronavirus spread. I've now, read frankly, those too. Um, I, 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 I hate to say this, but... I frankly, at this point, disbelieve the news media. Uh, it's not only that I don't trust it. In that case, I disbelieve the news media. And I don't say that lightly. When the same type of news media can say that 640, 650 cases since March is a major source of coronavirus cases, and yet that protests have shown no signs of causing sparks in coronavirus numbers, I frankly don't believe the news media. I think there is a very definite agenda that the news media is grinding. I think that any sort of objective reporting of facts has completely gone out the window. And I think Christians need to wake up and realize that when they read the New York Times, when they read the Post-Dispatch, when they read Yahoo News on their computer, when they listen to national public radio, they are being fed 
a line that is intentionally anti-Christian. And we need to wake up and recognize that and be extremely discerning in where we get our news from. For example, um, news breaks at the top of the hour with Kip Allen on KFUO <laughs> seem to be very accurate sources of the news that perhaps Christians should pay a lot of attention to. Well, um, I think so. Mainstream, yeah, I, I, I think so, too. But uh, the mainstream news media, we need to be very aware that they're not, um, they're not publishing news, they are publishing opinion and propaganda, and we need to call it what it is. Yeah, and, and the, the business has changed a lot since I first got into it. Uh, I've, I've been doing this for, <clears throat> oh, well, let's see. I got, out of, I got out of journalism school in 77, and so I've been doing it ever since. And the business has so changed. I mean, I, I see things that, that would have gotten me fired 40 years ago mm -hmm. and now are, are just rewarded. I'm just I'm just blown away by this. I, I don't understand how it's going. Uh, I had given um, I, I gave a number of uh, guest lectures at uh, of all things places the University of South uh, of South uh, Alabama uh, to some courses there. And uh, you know one of the questions I would raise is why do you want to be a journalist? And uh, so many of them say, well, I want to change the world. Mm -hmm. I want to make a difference. And they say, well, you know, then you've got to go into PR. Yeah. Because it's not your job as a journalist to do that. You simply report what has happened and have enough faith in the intelligence of your readers or listeners to make up their own minds. They don't do that anymore. They, they don't have that faith. There's this huge, huge feeling of elitism, I think, going on now with the uh, with with so many of them and uh, one of my favorite sayings is that uh, <laughs> they speak with the total assurance of the of the they speak with the assurance of the of the uh, totally ignorant <laughs> yep it is pretty easy to be extremely confident when you know very little isn't it <laughs> <laughs> it is it is indeed which uh, i'm i'm tempted to say is an apt description of many people in the news media right now uh, they have uh, very little fact, but lots of opinions to back it up. <clears throat> that's true. That's true. Yeah, true for politics. It's true for uh, social media. Uh, that's another. That's another bugaboo. Uh, where do we try? To, where do we go to try to get some information? And you know, when you yeah. get when you got groups like uh, uh, Twitter, for example, that are, that are openly censoring opinions that they don't like. Uh, Facebook, to an extent, has been doing that as well. I mean, there was yep. this, uh, you may have seen that one uh, interview uh, that Project Veritas did with one of the fact checkers who said that, uh, oh, she automatically uh, will uh, will kill anything that has uh, MAGA on it because they're all terrorists. Just common mm -hmm. sense. Uh, yep. You know, a couple of years ago, I was watching the movie The Case for Christ. Mm -hmm. about I've seen that. It's great. Um, path towards recognizing the truth of Christianity 
and uh, Lee Strobel was a journalist for the Chicago Tribune, and this was taking place back in the, I believe, 1970s, early 1980s, so right about the time that you talked about graduating from journalism school. And it really uh, caught my attention when you said that you see so many things going on now that would have gotten you fired when you first started out. And in that movie, The Case for Christ, uh, they've tried to recreate the newsroom at the Chicago Tribune. And I don't know if this was accurate or not, but I, I distinctly remember there was a huge, you know, early computer printout banner, the ones where you had the, the dots on the side, the dot matrix printer that you'd scroll through and have, you know, page after page taped together to make a banner. Do you remember those things? Oh, yeah. <laughs> and uh, the banner, the computer banner on the back wall of the uh, Chicago Tribune newsroom said something like, if your mother tells you she loves you, check, <laughs> check it, it out. out. <laughs> yeah, I've got a story uh, about that. When I <laughs> when I was in journalism school, my, my uh, one of my first classes there was taught by Professor Ben Baldwin, and uh, Professor Baldwin gave us an assignment to uh, interview him and write our stories, and so we we did, and everybody turned in their papers, and he takes the papers, throws them all in the trash, and says, "You all just failed." Why, says we, we reported what you said. And he said, I lied. Uh-huh. <laughs> and the thing was that everything he lied about all could have been checked out with, with the literature that we had within the classroom itself. He lied about his age. He lied about his wife's name. He lied about the number of kids he had. And it was all there. <laughs> and that's yep. when he said, if your mother says she loves you, check it out. Oh, that yep, was so true. That is, that is not being done in what passes for journalism today, pretty much on any side. Uh, you know, there are there are media outlets that try to claim that they are legitimate, and there are some that you know just openly proclaim that they come from a very leftist or a very far right uh, perspective on the news. Um, those are probably, <laughs> you know easier to read than the ones that claim <laughs> to be uh, centrist and legitimate, but actually are, you know, just as propaganda-driven as anything else. But there are very, very few places in the left, right, or center that is checking out and verifying what they are printing uh, or publishing or broadcasting. Um, and the the, the headlong rush towards sensationalism is not helpful for the overall dialogue and uh, productivity of society. Now, there's this rush to get it first rather than get it right. And, right. Uh, then even determining what is right is becoming problematic. Kirk, we're coming Maybe to I a have... break right now, but we got a lot more to talk about, so stick around. We're, we're going to be doing some more. LCMS Disaster Response and Training provides guidance and counsel to congregations seeking to show mercy to their neighbors before, during, and after disasters. From congregation preparedness to equipping volunteers in our Lutheran Early Response Team training, we can help you engage your community, particularly those who are suffering in any way, with the love of Christ. 
For more information, you can follow us on Facebook, keyword LCMS Disaster Response, or visit our website at lcms.org forward slash disaster. God is perfect and he demands perfection. Dr. Michael Ziegler says God's perfect standards are exceeded only by his perfect patience and forgiveness. Through Christ, he welcomes you and me, failures and all, and he starts a conversation. Become part of that conversation this week on The Lutheran Hour. Sundays at 12.30 and 5 p.m. on Worldwide KFUO. In 1924, by the grace of God, KFUO began broadcasting the good news of Christ for you. A long part of this history is bringing you worship services to hear and receive the good gifts of God in His words. This Sunday morning, join us for services from Ascension Lutheran Church in St. Louis at 815 and Our Savior Lutheran Church in Fenton at 1030, as well as Bible study from St. Paul's Lutheran Church in De Pere at 930. Hear Christ for you in Sunday morning services on KFUO. The Bible has long been a source of debate. On this date, in the summer of 1925, it became part of a court case over teaching the theory of evolution in Tennessee, in what became known as the Scopes Monkey Trial. John Scopes, a young high school science teacher, stood accused of teaching Darwin's theory of evolution in violation of state law. The trial captured the attention of the nation as attorneys Clarence Darrow and William Jennings Bryan made their cases. Stage plays and films titled Inherit the Wind would later offer fictionalized accounts of the famous trial. The title of the film is taken from Proverbs chapter 11. He who troubles his own house will inherit the wind. Engage with the Bible and its impact on history, culture, and art. Brought to you by Museum of the Bible in Washington, D.C. Well, welcome back to Let's Talk. The pastor is in. I'm program host Kip Allen, and my guest pastor today is Kirk Clayton from Zion Lutheran Church in Muscoota, Illinois. We are discussing, well, a a rather extended description, actually, of uh, Jesus warning that we're all going to be hated. (laughs) Pretty much. (laughs) And uh, we really are seeing it. It, it, it it's amazing to me. I I, I think it was a uh, was it the uh, the New York City Mayor De Blasio who was actually asked the question about well gee why do you have everything locked down and won't open up churches but you participate in uh, in mass demonstrations and he replied well those are apples and oranges. Mm-hmm. Okay, I didn't realize that virus differentiated. Yeah, it's strange how a virus can spread like wildfire through a church, but uh, marching shoulder to shoulder in a protest, um, it doesn't spread there at all. It's just utter hypocrisy. <laughs> oh, I'll, I'll tell you, I was um, I was driving down in downtown Clayton, which is the county seat for um, for St. Louis County, and uh, I passed a demonstration there, and there were hundreds of people, hundreds, shoulder to shoulder, some wearing masks, some not, just hundreds of them, and then I go to my church for a Sunday service, and we follow the guidelines. No one more than within six feet, of, unless we're family members. Uh, when we have the Lord's Supper, only three people are allowed up at the uh, communion rail at a time. 
the pastor is wearing latex gloves as he hands out the host. And, of course, you know, there's the individual cups for the wine. Very, very careful to do that, to follow the guidelines. And then we're criticized for it, and the demonstration is not. Right. We've been talking some about the uh, New York Times article from a couple of days ago with the headline, Churches Were Eager to Reopen. Now they're a major source of coronavirus cases and, and how blatantly ridiculous that headline itself is. But there have been a couple really good, very thoughtful responses to that, uh, probably much more thoughtful than this piece in the New York Times deserves. <laughs> but um, a couple that I found from Terry Mattingly and oh, yeah. Ed Stetzer. And uh, Terry Mattingly says that, you know, the bigger story than the spread of coronavirus cases in churches, says the bigger story was the, coro- the, was the cooperation that the leaders of most major religious institutions were showing. And so um, the churches have, by and large, been models of Christian care and concern for the neighbor in dealing with coronavirus cases. Um, in Illinois, and I can say for specific, uh, in the congregation I serve in Zion Mascuta, but I've seen this in a number of congregations across the Southern Illinois District, um, there have been several things where uh, the state has actually, usually against their will, opened more broadly than uh, we thought, more quickly than we thought. One instance was um, at about the uh, third week of May, uh, the the governor of Illinois, uh, Governor Pritzker, had set out a very strict timeline of stage one, stage two, stage three phases, I guess they're called phase one, phase two. Uh, And up until phase four, churches were supposed to have only 10 people in church. Now, a Supreme Court uh, Justice, uh, Brett Kavanaugh, I believe, had set a Thursday evening deadline that Governor Pritzker needed to uh, amend that to bring churches in line with other um, organizations in the state, or he was going to force a ruling on it. Well, amazingly, a couple hours before the deadline, um, the Illinois Department of Public Health uh, revised guidelines to say that uh, guidelines are uh, suggested, not mandated for churches, um, much, much more open for churches. And this came overnight. We did not expect that at all. Um, and then, uh, moving along in the progression that we, we did kind of expect, about the end of June, June 26th, I think was the date, in Illinois, we hit um, phase four of the governor's reopening plan, which allows gatherings of up to 50 for any reason. But at both cases, the the congregation where I serve and most congregations in the district were actually voluntarily much more careful than the state guidelines guidelines mandated. Now we we recognized and <laughs> raised a a significant um, voice of dissent that we we thought the state was overstepping their constitutional. Uh, mandate to dictate how churches are to gather or when and how they are to to gather. So we voiced dissent on constitutional grounds, but churches by and large were extremely cautious to protect the health and life of our members. And so uh, as Terry Mattingly writes in a piece that was published on his Got Religion site um, on July 8th, the big story is the cooperation that leaders in most major religious institutions 
were showing. Now, of course, does the New York Times um, highlight that? They do mention it buried somewhere deep into the article that we've been uh, discussing. They do talk about how many congregations are wearing masks and social distancing and so on. You know, uh, that's kind of like you, you have a, a, a headline on page one, and next time you have a, a, a retraction buried on the bottom of the third column of page five, yeah. right? So uh, the headline is, churches are a big problem. Then buried down in the story, they say, well, you know, most churches really have been behaving pretty well, and they've been very cautious. Um, But, I mean, the the balance of the reporting is so out of whack that really um, churches have been incredibly good um, community neighbors in trying to protect those that are weak and vulnerable. We know that a number of people that come to church probably are in the category of over 70 or over 80, maybe over 90, who are are somewhat more vulnerable to coronavirus. And so uh, churches have, by all means, wanted to do all they can to protect the health of our members and safety and and work for the public good um, and are getting virtually no recognition for the... um, for the way that we have tried to work for the good of society and are receiving, in fact, uh, strong uh, criticism for doing anything to open, whereas protests are encouraged. Um, You know, opening restaurants is exciting. Uh, You know, opening new venues, starting concerts, this is all good news. Churches tried to reopen, and oh, now they're a major source of coronavirus outbreaks with 650 cases total since March. Oh, boy. Well... (laughs) (laughs) It's incredible. Uh, and here's, here's another thing where, you, where uh, you know, you can lie with statistics. Uh, one of the things that they're trying to do, uh, by they, I mean various, uh, various officials are trying to track, uh, track the COVID virus people. You know, you're, you tested for po- positively, therefore, did you go to this church? Did you go to that restaurant? What have yeah. you? But now I'm going to quote here from uh, New, York's, uh, New York City's uh, uh, tracking where it says that the, uh, let me see here, what's the exact word? Oh, here we go. No person will be asked proactively if they attended a protest. Avery Cohen, spokesman for de Blasio. If a person wants to talk proactively about that information, well, then there's an opportunity to to do so. And a little bit further on, it says uh, New York cities have taken a a soft stance that mass protests somehow led to a spike in the coronavirus. Quote, let us be clear about something. If there is a spike in coronavirus cases in the next two weeks, don't blame the protesters. Blame racism. This according to Mark Levine, head of the city council's health committee. Okay. Utterly utterly ridiculous um now let let's let's just um say up front though too that protests do have constitutional protection mm-hmm. uh and so it's not necessarily out of line for new york city to say if someone comes down with coronavirus we're not going to ask any information about attending protests protests are constitutionally protected. So uh, let me read the First Amendment of the Constitution, the the first uh, edition of the Bill of Rights. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof or abridging the freedom of speech or of the press or the right of people peaceably to assemble and to petition the government for redress of grievances. And so the last 
two uh, portions of the First Amendment apply directly to protests, that uh, Congress shall make no law respecting the right of people peaceably to assemble, and we could say that these protests are also a form of petitioning the government for a redress of grievances. It's perfectly legitimate, according to the the First Amendment. But, (laughs) of course, that ignores everything that has come before. The first thing that the First Amendment of the Bill of Rights says is Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. Now, we could even look at the free exercise thereof portion. Back when uh, Barack Obama was president, there was a lot of speculation that President Obama was trying to redefine the First Amendment to say that free exercise really means the freedom to gather on Sunday morning and worship. Mm -hmm. I remember that. that, uh, That the freedom of religion actually only applies to what takes place in a house of worship, in a worship service on Sunday morning. And what you do on Sunday afternoon through Saturday night does not pertain to the free exercise of religion. Now, realize how far we've progressed even since then. That that was blatantly wrong in itself, uh, you know, five, six, seven years ago. That was a completely inappropriate interpretation of the First Amendment. But... Where we're at now is that the 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 government can even impede the free exercise of being in worship on Sunday morning. Oh so, yeah. I mean, President Obama never even went that far. Uh, he only wanted to limit the freedom of religion to Sunday morning. But now governments are claiming that they can discriminate against being in religion on Sunday morning, but not against the right to peaceably assemble and petition the government for deaths or grievances, which comes later in the First Amendment. So the, uh, the, the, the unconstitutional lunacy of that statement that you just made from the spokesman for the mayor of New York City is difficult to fathom. <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry if I'm, I'm uh, almost lapsing into a hyperbolic speech here, but yet, <laughs> how much more can you, can you say about how ridiculous some of these double standards are? We're not going to ask about if you've been at a protest, if you had COVID, but we're going to specifically ask if you've been in church, where and who you're with, even though both forms of assembly are specifically protected in the First Amendment of the Constitution. It's utterly insane at the the hypocrisy and the double standards that are being exhibited there. If I was a little bit more cynical than I am now, which is hard to believe. (laughs) (laughs) I thought we've been pretty cynical already, actually. (laughs) I'd be tempted to say that I see the evil one behind a lot of what's going on now. I I would definitely agree, uh, and you know Saint Paul says that uh, you know Satan is the prince of this world, and so we uh, certainly recognize that we are on hostile territory here, and that you know going back to what we started with, as Jesus says, uh, if the world hates you, it hated me first, and so we recognize that uh, the church is not going to be popular or accepted in the world, and in fact. Um, the church is in many very in, in many ways very countercultural and very subversive 
uh, the church works to protect those that are weak, those that are vulnerable. We really see that in the church's response to the coronavirus uh, epidemic. The, The state works by means of power and force. The church does not work by power, force, and coercion. The church works by love, service, sacrifice, and the proclamation of the gospel. And yet, the church wins hearts. Uh, The government simply perhaps wins votes by strong arm. Uh, The church, uh, the the state might be able to force certain decisions by, uh, you know, military might or whatever the case is. But the church changes hearts and changes minds. The, the state doesn't really have the platform to do that, and I think the state tends to be very intimidated by the fact that the church, through humble, quiet service, through sacrifice, through giving, through caring, actually does come to have an incredibly strong standing if it does what its job is, namely to proclaim the gospel and to care for uh, the lowest, the weak, um, and to show that love that Jesus has first shown to us, to those around us. Uh, For a government that only knows power, uh, that approach of love and sacrifice rooted in the gospel is uh, incredibly threatening, and uh, it's very subversive. And so actually, since the government works in the exact opposite way that the church does, the the government is entirely an institution of the law. The church is an institution, and only the church is an institution of the gospel. And so the church is a tremendous threat to the state. Well, we see uh, see that a lot, uh, especially in some recent uh, Supreme Court rulings. Secular forces have tried to force... Uh, excuse me. Yeah. yeah, inhale, then swallow. <laughs> uh, the uh, secular forces have tried to force, uh, for example, Christians, uh, Christian physicians, to participate in abortions. Doesn't matter what you if you have a moral objection to it, you will do it anyway. Or the situations with the little sisters of the poor, where they've been going after them for years to provide abortion-inducing drugs to their employees. What's going on? Yeah. And you well, know, you're, you're, you're right. These people are a threat. Thank God they are. They are a threat to this unbridled power. And you're right. You know, the, the government exists, admittedly, it's, it's established by God. We understand that. But it enforces through coercion. Or at least uh, it's good, it's getting to be that way. The, the original idea was, you know, a Britain Constitution, a Republican form of government. Therefore, we are the sovereign. We have no Caesar. We are Caesar. Well, it's changing. Mm-hmm. And since uh, those who don't know their history are doomed to repeat it, and history has been downplayed or mistaught in schools for 50 years, we don't know this great treasure that we have in our nation, where in fact the people are the power of the government and politicians merely work for the people, and we're getting that entirely backwards now. But only the church has the message uh, to correct that. It's very interesting. When you look at um, the governments that were set up for God's people in the Old Testament, yes, we can see you know, from Saul and David onwards there was a king, but almost always there were also prophets 
that their one of their main jobs was to call the kings to repentance and to stand up for the rights of the poor and the downtrodden in society. And time and time again, God would send prophets to limit the power of the kings and to call the kings to repentance. And so that continues to be the role of the church in society, to call the government to protect those that are weak and vulnerable, to protect the rights of the poor and the minorities, uh, and to stand up for those rights in any way that we need to, even if it goes directly contrary to the uh, interpretation of the government of that point. And the church, you know, has a history of tenacity in that. Over 2,000 years, time and time again, in the face of social injustice, the church has not backed down. And whether it's a duke or a king or an emperor or a president or a prime minister, uh, it doesn't matter. The church recognizes there are absolute standards of right and wrong that God gives. The government does not recognize absolute standards of anything. The government recognizes expedience and what can be done. Uh, that's not an absolute standard of justice. The church recognizes the absolute standard of God's justice and love and does not back down from challenging the government when it fails. Also, there there is a matter of truth, uh, and you you alluded to you alluded to it with the schools, for example. Uh, you will often find uh, well the uh, they ignoring the role that Christians played in the abolition movement. Mm -hmm. you know, ben Franklin, one of the signers of the Declaration of Independence, was an ardent abolitionist and fought for fought against slavery his entire life. And they also ignore, for example, the role that Islam played in slavery in the slave trade. Right. And then there's this ridiculous, speaking of the New York Times earlier, this, this uh, <laughs> absurd and intellectually dishonest fraud called the 1619 Project. They've even had to retract some of their own. And you know what it's like to get the New York Times to retract something. <laughs> <laughs> Bottom column, page five. Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, the uh, the uh, woman who who started that uh, program said, "Well, uh, the main one of the main reasons for the revolution was to preserve slavery." Say what? Oh, yeah, ridiculous. Absolutely ridiculous. And finally, even the New York Times said she's wrong. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, even uh, uh, there's even some honor among thieves or some honor among journalists once in a while, huh? <laughs> well, especially when you're caught red-handed and you can't refute it. Although I think well, the uh, the editor on that still is maintaining she's correct. <laughs> but... uh, yeah. Well, I, I remember a, uh, and this has been probably twenty years ago. There was a um, a study of uh, you know mainline journalists, and I think this might have been broadcast journalism, and it was shown that like eighty to ninety percent of all people in broadcast newsrooms were. Um, of a liberal bent. Um, and the, the editor said, well, but that's okay, because we can report objectively. And so then someone said, well, what would you say if 80 to 90% of your newsroom were conservative? Oh, that would be biased. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I can hear that. I, I'm going to go back a little bit in history. You know, I, I mentioned my training as a journalist. My dad was a journalist he, um, since uh, 1935. Uh-huh. Uh uh, Dad was a uh, an ardent New Dealer. I mean, he 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 thought Roosevelt walked on water, but mm -hmm. boy, he kept his opinions to himself when he was reporting, and he he drilled that into me. Was that my 
views don't matter when I'm reporting the news. His views don't matter when he's right. reporting the news. And that's, that's change. You know, we're, what is the role of the media? Are we to be the loyal opposition to the government, merely a watchdog? Or are we to be agents of change? <sighs> Good heavens. I don't know where we're going to go with this one. You know, you mentioned um, Roosevelt. This is not where you're planning to go, but um, I, I had a delightful member of the congregation that lived to be about 96 years old. She died about 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. So you, you back her birth date up from that. Um, and I remember visiting with her in her apartment in her retirement home. And she said, oh, I remember the day that FDR was elected, and there was just a whole new spirit in the nation, and such such a vibrancy as we knew that FDR was going to help us as a people, and that, that Hoover, he didn't do anything for us. And it, it was just the most amazing moment. It's like, I am talking to living history here. Oh, yeah. As you mentioned with your dad, your dad was an ardent New Deal guy, but he didn't let that come in. Uh, and it was just, it was fascinating listening to, to this dear saint um, and her her perfectly clear recollection of things that you know I'd read about in history books, but it was just fascinating. So you know this is this is another uh, branch of the the church that um, you know we are called to uh, care for those who maybe wouldn't receive care in another way. And um, this this dear saint never married, never had children. Her only relative, her sister, had died previously. I don't know if she received any other visits in the month other than mine. And yet, at every opportunity, I would go, sometimes I'd take our children to go and listen to her and share their love with her. And the church, just in humble, quiet ways, loves people as Jesus has loved us. And that makes a tremendous difference. You know, the New York Times can rant and rage, um, but the church simply provides love and care. And kind of bringing things back around full circle, we talked about Jesus' admonition that the world will hate us, and we're seeing more and more often through New York Times articles and through the spokesperson for the mayor of New York City and, you know, all these other things that we've, uh, you know, pegged the cynical meter pretty high on today. Uh, We see it's true that the world does hate the followers of Christ as it hated Christ, and yet um, Jesus says, this is in John chapter 16, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. And so this is in the same dialogue that Jesus warns that the world will hate Christians as it hated him. But Jesus says, that's okay. In me you may have peace. In the world you'll have tribulation, but take heart, I've overcome the world. And so, uh, you know, Kip, in your uh, introduction, you talked about how we're kind of sitting out on the front porch, uh, you know, in a rocking chair, chatting back and forth. And isn't kind of the uh, the purpose of sitting on a front porch, chatting with someone, uh, kind of therapeutic to just get things off your chest, get things out in the open. So um, uh, I feel a whole lot better after talking to you than, than I did an hour ago. Maybe this is, uh, you know, some, some group therapy for the two of us and maybe for our listeners. Well, that's, um, that's the way I look at it. <laughs> So, you know, hopefully by by venting, blowing off a little steam and frustration at uh, nearly fraudulent journalism, maybe we've had some group (laughs) group therapy, group catharsis. But uh, in the the end accounting of things, you know, that is of much less significance than what Jesus says. Um, 
in Jesus we have peace, uh, that Jesus has overcome the world, we can take heart that although in this world we'll face difficulties, we know that our hope is not for this world. Jesus has overcome. Yes, the world rejected him, crucified him, but in the ultimate uh, way of overcoming the world, he overcame death itself. And we know that we will too. And so the, the trials and difficulties you're going through is actually very, very helpful, very instructive. It, it reminds us that this this world is not our home. We have a greater hope awaiting, and so you know we're we're not necessarily going to uh, see a lot of favorable headlines in the New York Times. But our interest is not what's written in the New York Times, but what's written in the Lamb's Book of Life, where our names appear, and we will be with Christ, where we don't have to worry about any of that uh, for a much longer time than the the period of our coronavirus tribulations here. Well, Pastor, I really want to thank you for this. It has been therapeutic. I love doing this program <laughs> largely because of that reason. Because <laughs> like I say, well, you know, there's a lot I don't talk. understand, but you know, that's okay. The answers are out there. Okay. Pastor Kirk Clayton of Zion Lutheran Church in Oscuta, Illinois. Thanks for being on this program. You've been listening to The Pastor Is In. A weekly chance to chat with a pastor. Your support is vital for this program to continue. To learn about giving opportunities, call Mary at 314-996-1518. You can make a gift safe, secure, and easily online at kfuo.org. Thank you for listening and supporting. The Pastor is in on Worldwide KFUO.